Welcome to the Shadron Berean Church Podcast, where you'll find some of the latest teachings from Shadron Berean Church in Shadron, Nebraska. We are a loving community of believers growing in God's grace in Christ together. The heartbeat of our church is to have deep roots in the Word of God and to bear fruit by passionately applying it to our lives by His power for His glory. And we thank you for joining us. But imagine sitting one, sitting down one day to read the newspaper, drink your coffee, your tea, whatever you drink, and, and you find in the newspaper your own obituary. That'd be pretty shocking, wouldn't it? It'd also be kind of interesting, like, ooh, what did they have to say about me? And my life, it's like a snapshot biography of your life right there for you. Well, story has it that that actually happened to Alfred Nobel. You might know him uh, from the Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, he's the inventor of dynamite as well. And before the Nobel Peace Prize and Nobel Foundation, he was known as that, the inventor of dynamite. And a journalist, mistaking him for his recently deceased brother, uh, printed up a scathing obituary of his life. Um, Dynamite, we know, it's something that can be used for good or evil, but the editor labeled him as the merchant of death who got rich finding new ways to mutilate and kill. And so after reading this, uh, apparently the article led Nobel to rewrite his will, become a philanthropist, and start the Nobel Foundation. He wanted to be known for something different than what this journalist had uh, made of his legacy. He wanted to rewrite that, and he got another chance. But I think that's a fitting thought to kick off our biographical sermon series on the life of Moses. Because as we study Moses' life... You might find yourself asking, as I have been asking all week, how is my obituary going to read? What is my biography going to say if anybody were to write one? What's it going to read like? Uh, What legacy am I leaving behind? It's a good question. Um, Personally, I really enjoy uh, biographical books and sermons. They've been some of my favorite over the years, especially biblical uh, biographies, um, studies on the life of a person from Scripture. Um, By studying their life and their walk with God, we in turn uh, learn, right, how how to walk with God ourselves. Um, We we learn from their mistakes. We learn from their... um, their wins, right? Their wins and their losses. And uh, I just find them really encouraging. Uh, you might find yourself, as we go through this, this study on the life of Moses, just relating to uh, them in very personal ways. Relating to Moses in a very personal way, even though he lived, what, 2,000 plus, no, 3,500 years ago on the opposite side of the world, 
in a different culture, but God's word is amazing like that in that it can it can it's sharp, it's 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 living, it's active, and it can it can still touch your hearts even though it was written so long ago. Uh, sometimes we're going to go through this study, and you're going to find yourself saying, "Been there, done that," right? Either in a good way or a bad way. I've been there, done that. I've learned from that mistake or this mistake, and or you might say, "Wow, I'm." I'm there right now. Where Moses was is where I'm at right now. Sometimes you're humbled. As you, as you read a biography or you, you, you hear biography, sometimes you're, you're encouraged, you're challenged, you're, you're safeguarded, right? It keeps you from making some, some mistake that you might have. Sometimes you're, you're comforted. And sometimes you just find yourself smiling, at least I do, at just how, how relevant that this, this is for, for your life. Uh, but then again, again, we shouldn't be surprised because God's Word is living and active. And, hey, Paul said, speaking of Moses and the Israelites and what they went through, he said what they went through was written for our instruction so we can learn from them. All Scripture is, is inspired of God. And, uh, and it's good for... For righteousness, right? For his training in righteousness, um, for making us men and women of God who are adequate, perfectly equipped for every good work, Scripture says. But let's ask the question this morning: Who is Moses? Moses. I've been saying that to my kids all week. You know, God speaking from the bush. Who is Moses? Well, to be honest, some of you guys might not even know who Moses is, right? You're still thinking of Noah. Right, you get Noah and Moses confused. Some of you probably have images of Charleston Heston uh, running through your minds because you, you watched him in the Ten Commandments every year during Easter for a three-hour ride. Right, um, Strong, deep voice, gray-haired man, flawless. Uh, maybe you think of the cartoon character in The Prince of Egypt. I don't know if you've seen that one, but it's, this Moses is a sleek chariot racing, fun, quick-witted young man, um, ageless type of guy. Um, both of these, I think, are unrealistic when we consider what Scripture has to say about Moses. But he was a man who lived in the same world we do. He faced the same kinds of struggles we faced, both inwardly and outwardly. And he didn't always handle them correctly, so he wasn't perfect. But this is a man that God used in incredible ways to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. So, why study Moses? Well, honestly, this guy has been next on my biographical sermon list for four years. I've been waiting. One of the first series I did here was on Noah. Right? Remember that? Being a man of the flood. And right after that, I thought, who's next? And I went and thought, Moses. And I started taking notes way back then, but uh, we're finally here. It's finally the right time. And I'm excited about that. And I'm interested in studying his life, and I hope you are too. But uh, for one reason is that uh, outside of Jesus, uh, probably no one has left an impression as deep and as lasting as Moses. Right? When you think about it as a... As a, as a man of God that he used, that God was using. 
Um, one man said, history turns like a hinge on Moses' birth. Um, our lives, even our, the laws of our country, when you think about it, the Ten Commandments and all of that, have been shaped by God's influence through him and how God used him. He's the, the writer of the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, the Pentateuch, we call it. He's the writer of a psalm in our Bibles. He's mentioned more than 700 times. And uh, as the nation of Israel's leader, I mean, humanly speaking, his life spans the pages of uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So a very influential man in our Bibles. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, uh, we get to see God's own estimation of Moses at the end of his life. God says this, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. How many guys can you say experience that? They knew God face to face. Uh, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, and for all the mighty power of all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So it's almost, I think when you think about it, it's almost inconceivable to think that God would use anybody today as he did Moses. I mean, his achievements are daunting when you think about them. Um, trying to do a short series on his life is also daunting. Um, this guy was, is amazing. He was a godly leader. He was humble. Uh, his numbers says there was no, like, no man more meek or more humble than, than Moses in all the earth. He was a man of prayer, of loyalty, of courage. And so we're going to learn a lot from him. Even though his accomplishments for God are just renowned and he's kind of a standout, he was not much different than you and I. I think we're going to be encouraged by that. He was not a perfect man, but God used him greatly, mightily. And uh, I'm excited to study his life with you. So we're going to start with his birth in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. Um, the first main heading in your outline is Israel multiplies in Egypt. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They, they came, each one with his own household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, uh, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was Filled with them. So we'll stop there. These first few verses really function as a bridge that connects Exodus to Genesis. Actually, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, I think they all start with the Hebrew vav, which is basically and. Right? Sometimes it's translated now, but it's just and. It's basically saying this is just continuing what the la where the last book left off. It's a bridge. It's a continuation of Jacob's family and a record of the formation of the nation of Israel. And that's important because if, if we're going to appreciate the exodus, Israel's coming out of Egypt with Moses as a leader, we should know how they ended up there. We've got to do a little background work. Exodus, um, by the way, just means exit. 
You think exodus, exit, departure, coming out or going out, that sort of thing. Um, remember, God also uh, promised um, a man named Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, the first Israel, <laughs> first Hebrew man, right? So first Jew, first Hebrew. He would make a great nation, a chosen nation from Abraham's descendants. He would, God said he would make them like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. They'll be innumerable. And you, you see right here in the first paragraph, God's keeping his promise, right? They're multiplying greatly, and the land is filled with them. So God promised to Abraham's descendants the land of Canaan, which we, we know of today as the land of Israel uh, normally. But um, before they were to inherit that land, God had to make a nation out of Abraham, right? God promised Abraham, you're going to inherit this land, but he had to make them a nation first. And so God said uh, that his offspring would, would be sojourning servants in the land of Egypt first. And there's two main reasons for that, if you want to jot them down. I mean, why Egypt? Why the nation of Israel has to be go to Egypt or why his descendants have to end up there? Um, it's number one, to prepare Israel. To prepare Israel. I mean, Egypt was like God's warm and prosperous incubator where he hatched a nation. A nation that would eventually be able to conquer the land of Israel and, and overtake it. So he blesses them there. He multiplies them there over the course of 400 years, just like he said he was going to. Um, second reason was to prepare the land. So to prepare Israel and to prepare the land. What land? The land of Canaan. God is keeping tabs on the nations in the land of Canaan who are extremely wicked. Extremely wicked. Uh, they sacrifice their own young, that sort of thing. It doesn't sound much different than today, does it? But they, God would not go in. Think about this. God would not go in and wipe out these Canaanites, Amorites, until their iniquity was complete, he said. So he's patient, and he's waiting for judgment to be ripe, and God was going to use Israel to carry out that judgment then. But they ended up in Egypt through a chain of unorthodox, God-ordained events, right? Events that make your head spin. How in the world could God ever use this, right? Joseph, uh, Abraham's great-grandson, I think we could call him, was hated by his brothers. They hated him, right? He's the special son that dad favored, and, and they, they sold him as a slave and faked his death. And so he ends, he ends up in Egypt, but because God is with him, through his chain of events, he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man who basically is in charge of the, uh, of the Egyptian empire, you know, the, the superpower. And, and there's a famine, and God reveals that. And, and so Joseph is in charge of all of this, this famine, and, and his brothers who sold him in, into slavery have to come down from Canaan all the way down to Egypt, and they have to depend on Egypt and Joseph. And so that's how they end up there. And as you close the book of Genesis, there's about uh, 70 of them. And uh, they, they settle in the land of Goshen in the east, eastern part of the Nile Delta. And they increase rapidly here, going from 70 to around 2 million people by the time 
of the Exodus. And I think if you look at the past, the Jews, the numbers of the Jews in the past, that's not unrealistic at all. Uh, this is what they're known for. Why? Well, God made a promise, you know, and he sees it through. But apparently they took God's command to be fruitful and multiply seriously, huh? Um, within the marriage covenant, of course. But this, this became, for the Egyptians, a huge problem, as we read on in verse 8. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than me. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters, taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But they were more, that the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor vigor, rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field and all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So uh, Joseph dies, right? Time moves on. A new king has ascended the throne who doesn't know him and with no Joseph there to step in and offer a kind word on behalf of the Hebrew people, um, the attitude towards the Hebrews is souring. In fact, many commentators made the point that this probably took place right after or during that Egypt had overthrown the Hyksos rulers. These were a Semitic people who had come into Egypt at one point and overthrown uh, the Egyptians in their own land. Uh, so foreigners took over, and for a long time, uh, that was possible because for a long time, Egypt didn't have an army. You know, the desert around them and the ocean and the rivers, well, that, was their, you know, that was their defense system, and, and it worked well. But um, apparently, eventually, the Egyptians were able to drive out these Hyksos rulers, and they developed an army for the first time. And so, but this is, this is one of the reasons for the growing suspicion and the growing hatred of the Hebrews, right? These are foreigners. And, you know, they might join their enemies if, it, if, they come, or if that sort of thing comes around again. And there's a lot of them. So they're in dread. They're actually fearful of the Israelites. But besides that, the Israelites were also shepherds. And shepherds were loathsome to the sophisticated Egyptians, you know, they, they, they just despise. You can read about this in Genesis, but they, they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't like shepherds. They were looked at as lowlifes, you know. The, remember, Egypt is, at this time, the world's superpower. You know, this, this is the place. What Athens was in Acts, um, Egypt is in the book of Exodus, this is where it's at. This is where they're serious about education. They have universities. They have writing, hieroglyphs, right? They have art. They have music. They have math, mathematics, engineering. You've got to think about the pyramids. Um, wisdom, history, medicine, dentistry. They even did rudimentary brain surgery, right? So these aren't, these aren't cavemen dragging their knuckles. Uh, this is ancient Egypt. This is a superpower. Acts 7.22 says, Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. 
so he's a, he's a smart man. But they had a very debased system of worship, uh, worshiping really dark, satanic powers. And so they're, they're a superpower, but they have a connection with the dark powers. And we're going to see that as we go through the plagues. But with those elements in the background, you can see how the, the suspicion and the hostility would grow rapidly against these foreign Hebrews who have a monotheistic belief system, right, that only worship one God. So, um, exit, here we see, exit peace, exit prosperity, and enter the taskmaster and the whip. Um, they're forced to do construction for the Egyptians and labor in their fields. We'll see later that they're forced to make bricks and bricks uh, without straw uh, from the Nile Delta mud, and that's something that, that we have uh, great circumstantial evidence for. Um, I can't help but mention a couple of these things. Um, archaeologists have found mud brick structures made without straw in the eastern Nile Delta of Avaris and Pyramses, right? Cities that we've just read about. And, and uh, we've also got hieroglyphs like this one here um, from one of the tombs, pictographic writings that depict two Egyptian supervisors um, lashing a group of Semitic people making bricks, telling them to work without fainting. Right? So I think it just all just backs up what we're seeing going on in Exodus. Um, Pharaoh wants these Israelites to work themselves to death under the hot Egyptian sun, probably killing some of them off and leaving others too exhausted for a life at home, discouraging childbearing. Uh, but the Bible says the more they worked, the more they multiplied. So it wasn't working for him. So Pharaoh actually has to crank up the dial. He turns to genocide. Uh, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of them named Shipra and the other named Pua. And he said to them, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. If it's a daughter, then he shall, she shall live. But, well, you got to love these two ladies, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get to them. Right? So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. He established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. So midwives uh, were or are women who specialize in maternity care, uh, they assisted mothers and babies at childbirth, and um, it, it seems like we're even seeing a resurgence of this uh, practice today. But these two witty women, witty women, are, are, are more likely to be like the supervisory midwives of all the midwives. At least that's the way it, it just comes across in the chapter. Uh, they kind of oversee the midwives in Egypt. And according to Pharaoh's orders, they're to kill all of the male Hebrew babies. I mean, I'm guessing that they were just going to watch closely as the baby came out, and if it was a boy, they would probably cover that part up and suffocate the child before it even had a chance to breathe. 
and, and just kind of say, well, the baby was stillborn. Um, or, I, I don't know, to be honest, they could have just, they weren't supposed to be secretive about it at all. Now, this is an edict, right? Kill the baby, kill the males. And people were supposed to submit to that. Um, I don't really know what it would have looked like, but it's wretched to think about it happening then or happening today. Um, Gut-wrenching to think about. But worth noting, I think, is this, that this is the first example uh, of anti-Semitism in the Bible. I mean, technically we could go back to, to the murder of, uh, of Abel, right? And Satan's plan to, to stop the Messiah from being born that way. But uh, this, this, this is not just people hating other people. I hope you see that this morning. This isn't xenophobia here. This is satanic stuff that's going on here. And all abortion is. At least influenced by him. See, Satan knows that through Israel, through the Jews, through the Hebrews, the Messiah will come. He knows the Messiah is coming through a Hebrew baby boy, right? Through the seed of a woman. It's the Proto-Evangelium from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Right, uh, God promised there was a seed coming through the woman. That's weird, right? Women don't have seed. It's a virgin birth is what's going to happen, right? But I think uh, this is why we're seeing what we're seeing in Egypt. Uh, why, why he's going after the Hebrew boys. Uh, Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain on what happened with Jesus' birth. You remember Jesus' birth. Hebrew tried to kill, or Herod tried to kill all of the males under two years old, right? Trying to kill the infant Messiah. Trying to kill the baby boys. How interesting, though, to think about what's really taking place here. What's really going on behind the scenes. This is a cosmic battle. This is a cosmic spiritual battle that we see taking place here. and um, This wasn't just Herod trying to, you know, keep the throne for himself. It wasn't just man. This isn't just Pharaoh. This is satanic. This is the serpent of old, the dragon in the garden, seeking to kill the Messiah. And uh, how interesting, too, to think that Pharaoh's crown has a serpent on his forehead. Just something I kind of picked up on this week. Takes on, he takes on the role of the serpent, killing these Hebrew boys. But thank God, on a more positive note, for pro-life, God's pro-life people. They, people who fear God more than they, they fear men. These midwives tell Pharaoh, maybe honestly, that, that these women are, are vigorous and the babies are coming out before they can say push, Right? Before they can get there and say push. And I don't doubt that. God is with them. God's with them. I mean, it could really be happening. God could be speeding things up providentially. I, I've, I've been in that, that room a few times with my wife. And sometimes you're, you're sitting around forever and ever. It just seems like waiting and waiting and waiting for this baby to be born, right? All these contractions, you know, they just go on and on and on. And we're walking the halls. And then before you know it, the baby's there and the doctor's rushing into the room late. You know, it's like, I think we even came close to having a baby in the hospital without the doctor there because it happened so fast. Once it did, decide to happen. 
But um, hey, even if it's not true, even if, if they're kind of lying through their teeth a little bit, these women are courageous. And they're doing what's right. And God honors them for that. You know, if, if you were the ten booms and the Gestapo came knocking on your door in Nazi Germany, what would you do? I'll tell you what I would, I would do. I would not tell them the truth, in a sense. There's another way to say it, probably. But who was that? Diedrich Bonhoeffer, Pastor Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I think during those times. He was in on the plot to kill Hitler, to carry out justice. He said to do, to do evil. No, to be evil is worse than to do evil. You have to think about it in those circumstances, right? The Bible says, look, be subject to rulers, be subject to those in authority, but that's not a blanket submission there. You, you, not if it goes against God's laws. Uh, there's a time to resist and a time to obey God rather than men, as the apostles did in Acts chapter 5. Um, how awesome is it, though? Scripture records the names of these midwives, Shifra and Pua, but not the name of Pharaoh. Isn't that great? I kind of wish he would have included Pharaoh's name because it'd just be nice for the dating of the Exodus. But um, it tells you what God really cares about. He cares about, he's impressed with not power and prestige. He's impressed with people of faith, people who do what's right. And he blessed these midwives for their refusal to do what Pharaoh said. Secondly, let's look at the birth of Moses now in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. So, um, stop there. From other scriptures, uh, we know Moses' parents as Amram and Jochebed. Uh, Both are from the tribe of Levi. And Levites would become, as we'll see, the mediating priests and the caretakers of the tabernacle and of the temple. And so I think that the the mention of Levi is mentioned because it's a little clue as to the function that Moses is going to serve in. He's going to be the main mediating priest. He's going to be the go-between between God and Israel. And notice his parents, too, are committed to the Lord, and they disobey Pharaoh. Uh, they, they see their child as beautiful, as any, any parent does, and they hide him for three months. Can you imagine trying to hide a baby for three months? That had to be exhausting. But Hebrews eleven twenty three for this they make it into the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven twenty three. It says they did this by faith. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they make it into the hall of faith and hide him for three months. How cool is that? But you know what happens after three months, right? Uh, Babies get their lungs. Uh, They get a little too loud, they get a little too active, and they realize we've got to do something about this. And so uh, they come up with a plan, and I call it a plan. Verse Verse 3, you'll see why. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket. And covered it over with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. And his sister, uh, Moses' sister, Miriam, uh, stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. 
And the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call and nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. And so the girl went and called the child's mother, her own, right? Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and the child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses and said, Because I drew him out of the water. So while her husband, Jochebed's husband, is probably slaving away, right, Jochebed carries out a plan. She, she puts him in a whisk, wicker basket that floats. And the word used here is the same word used for Noah's ark in Genesis. So an ark saved Noah and an ark saved Moses. But uh, she places this little ark among the reeds for Pharaoh's daughter to find. I think she does that intentionally. But in parts of the ancient Near Eastern world, at least in some cultures, I don't want to lump all of the cultures of the Near East together, but it appears that back then that this was the equivalent of associating, uh, sort of associating like the, the child with the god of the river. You know, there was all sorts of rituals associated with the god of the river. And so by putting a baby out there, you were, you were committing that child into that, that God's hands, right? Which in a pagan sense would be awful, right? Um, but secondly, it was kind of like setting a child on someone's doorstep, maybe the doorstep of a church. Please don't do that if you're listening to this. and you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, maybe you should. But, you know, that's sort of what it's like, setting the, the baby on someone else's doorstep. It's interesting. I ran into a couple this week. Basically, the same thing happened to them. Uh, surprise, there's a baby you're adopting, right? Um, it's pretty neat. Thank God for those people. But I think uh, that's how the, the earliest audiences would have read this, this portion of Scripture. They would have thought, this child is being commissioned. They're being committed into the care of God. And this baby has a divine vocation that lay ahead. And we know that from just other Eastern accounts, and I'm not going to go into it. But he's going to be a ruling deliverer. He's going to be a deliverer. And what happens here is really, I think, similar to what God does with the plagues. He takes something that's supposed to be under the influence of pagan gods, you know, like the river, right? The god of the river. Like, and, and, and God basically takes this, this old storyline, this old thing, and basically... He makes it clear that he's the one in control of that river, not the pagan gods, right? And we're going to see this with the plagues over and over and over again. God is saying, look, I'm God. Your gods are not. I'm stronger, right? And uh, it's saying that this baby's going to have a special role. I must admit, though, that while I always, I always pictured him floating down the river, it doesn't say that. I always pictured Moses floating down the river past crocodiles and ships and, you know, the, the fowl. But Jochebed is actually more careful than that. She places him among the reeds, and you know those cat like the reeds are just really sturdy, right? And she places him there right on the edge. 
And I think she knew that a soft-hearted princess was, princess was going to walk by soon. And it was going to visit and take pity on him. Uh, Moses' sister Miriam is mentioned. She's probably 8 to 10 years old at this time. She watches from a distance. Uh, so she's got her eye on Moses. It's not like they just abandon him. I mean, she's there uh, watching. Aaron, his brother, is 3 years older at this point. So he's a 3-year-old. But uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds the baby. The baby starts crying, and Miriam just kind of walks up, you know, all casual, like, uh, you know, I'm not, not, not the least bit interested in this baby, you know. But, hey, uh, you know, if I'll try to find a wet mom to nurse this baby for you if you want. You know, <laughs> you could have, it's just really comical. It's just uh, somewhat. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll find a mom to feed it for you. Right, and then she goes and greets her mom, and she's saying, "You're not going to believe this, right?" And um, Pharaoh's daughter, right, even says she's going to pay Jochebed now to raise her son. So Pharaoh is now basically right, because right, her her dad's Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh is now paying to raise a Hebrew boy who's going to deliver the Hebrews from his hand. How about that, huh? What a turn of events. It's got God's hand all over it, doesn't it? This is it's not coincidence. It's providence. Uh, Proverbs 21 one says, The heart of the king is like water in the hands of the Lord, right? And he channels it wherever he wishes. You know, and apparently the king's daughter's heart is the same way. Now, this is God, this is God's hands all over it. Even you got to think about Pharaoh. Even Pharaoh during this time is wicked. This is the things that are taking place. Romans 9, 17 tells us that Pharaoh is basically a pawn in God's hands. And God's, God is doing something great. He's raising up a deliverer. You have to think that, that God is stirring up Pharaoh to get Israel out of Egypt. Okay, it's pretty... It's pretty neat. But eventually, the, boys, uh, the boy grows old enough to be given back to Pharaoh's daughter um, once he's weaned. And uh, she names him Moses. Little did she know Moses would be the one to draw out Israel from Egypt like he was drawn out of the water. Um, but I can't imagine, too, the agony of Jochebed who let him go way too soon. Uh, I can't imagine that. She's heartbroken. Uh, as I'll get at, but you have to think that she's also thankful that he's not going to be forced into slavery. Um, he's going he's gonna to have a pretty decent life, right, behind Pharaoh's gates. And uh, you know that she's going to be praying for him every single day. And we know she's a woman of faith. She knows God is up to something. So, in summary... Um, I just want to ask, like, what, what are we to make of Moses' birth and the circumstances surrounding it? And what do we make of this mess? Right? This is ugly. It's grim. The slavery, the genocide, Jochbed having to let go of her son, uh, her baby boy, you know, she, it being raised by another family with different gods. I mean, who in their right mind would look at this situation and think that this is good? That's not our natural tendency, is it? We look at this and we think, what in the world, right? I mean, how can this be of God? 
And yet, this is the background of one of the most influential, like what good could come out of this? That's the question, right? What good could come out of this? And yet, this is the background of one of the most influential godly men who ever lived. This is what God's chosen man was born into. This is what God's chosen man, deliverer of Israel, came out of. And as hard as it is to acknowledge, Moses is right where God needs him to be. God is raising up a deliverer. From a human perspective, this looks like nothing but trouble. But from God's perspective, his plan is moving forward to accomplish his will, his purposes for his glory. God is going to work through all of this. Doesn't Genesis 50, 20 tell us God can use evil for good? It's how sovereignty is. And so our main principle for today from Moses' life, the big one, is that God's people have to operate through eyes of faith. Eyes of faith. See things through eyes of faith. Um, like the midwives or Moses' parents, we, we can't operate by feelings. We can't operate by sight. We have to operate by faith. In fact, we're going to see that this entire this book of Exodus is a book about deliverance through faith. Sounds like the gospel, doesn't it? Deliverance through faith. What God can accomplish through people of faith. It's a book of faith, about faith, directed at a people of faith. Now we look at this mess in Exodus and think things are falling apart. What good could come from this? But from God's perspective, things are falling into place. In the words of Jethro, I'm going to quote the prince of Egypt here, okay? He says, you have to learn to see things through heaven's eyes. See things through heaven's eyes. There's a bigger picture developing. One that Moses won't even understand until he's, get this, 80 years old. For 80 years. It won't be 80 years until he finally realizes why. Why this had to take place. So, how about your biography? Your own biography, your life. Maybe you look back on your childhood and on your life, or maybe your current set of circumstances, and you're tempted to think everything's out of control. The righteous suffer, the wicked prosper. Or maybe I'm, I'm an accident, or God has forgotten about me. God has forgotten his people. I have to imagine that many of the Israelites in Egypt felt that way every day when that whip cracked. Where is God? Where is his promise? Maybe you're tempted to think the same thing. But what if, okay, just what if 5, 10, 20, 40 years from now down the road and on into eternity, you're going to look back on your life and all the junk and you're going to say, with Moses, God knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. 
He really is a Romans 8.28 kind of God. A God who can work all things, all things, good and bad, for the good of those who love Him. But for now, you know what you have to do? You have to walk by faith. You have to walk by faith. One man wrote, Our moment in history and our unique individual circumstances become the anvil. (laughs) The anvil upon which our character is beaten out and formed. We'll either rise to the occasion, the, the challenge of our times as people of faith, or we'll remain stuck on the sideline. Think about that. We've got one more application that I want to make this morning real quick. Um, if you're here this morning, you don't have any hope for your circumstances. You don't know where you're going to spend eternity. You don't have a walk with God, but, but you're thinking you would like one. You need to know that God, that the way to God, it's, it's not through your own effort. It's not by being good enough. It's not by trying harder to be a good person. Um, it's only through what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Everyone has, an ex- has a genesis, right? We've all been born, but the Bible says you need an exodus. You need a departure from sin, right? From sin's penalty, right? And sin's power in your life. You need an exodus. And that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate deliverer. Who was to come. We'll get into it more later, but Moses is only a type of the ultimate deliverer who would come, who is Christ. He's the one who draws us out of slavery to sin uh, through faith in him.